Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemers. If you are one of the lucky ones to get here early enough, uh, Sergio, for eight years, I have been brewing coffee at the church. Uh, Sergio took it over. It was so good this morning. We ran out. Um, also, if you're interested, that is his coffee that he roasts the beans at home. And so just killing it. It's called Sprig. Is that right? Yeah, I got it right. All right. Uh, my family's been getting it the last few weeks from him. It is excellent. Talk to Sergio. He's on slides. Um, I think... Michael's back there really trying to get some. I don't know who's back there really trying to get some. Oh, it's Donald. He is going for it. (laughs) All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, um, we finished up Matthew last week with Chuck Bomar. Who was here for Chuck? Yeah, Yeah, Chuck killed it. So if you missed it, I'm sorry. That's your loss. Uh, We would have loved to have said that we are done with Matthew, but I'm going to have you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to go back to the beginning of the story during this Advent season of anticipation and hope of the birth of our Savior. So Matthew chapter 1, and let me just pray for our time here this morning. Lord, may you still our hearts, and may we know that you're present with us. Your people gathered together, and you are in the midst. And you desire to work one to another in this place with words of encouragement and hope and love and mercy, moments of truth spoken in love. May we learn what it means to be a body that is fitted and joined together, growing up in unity with one another. May that just prayer sit over our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, yesterday, I was out on the back 40 of my property rednecking. I was burning a bunch of boxes. <laughs> it's awesome. And we have this um, red radio flyer wagon. And it's not the kind that you buy in the store today that's made of plastic and the wheels are made of plastic. This thing is all metal, baby. Like, it is the real deal. And on the back of our property, um, there is these, like, little hills for your your dirt bike or whatever. And my littles, so Addie Mae and Eleanor, they are five and seven. And they take this wagon, because it's central Oregon, and there's no snow yet. But we still want to go down hills. And they take this wagon, and Eleanor is sitting in it, and Addie Mae, she is my youngest, she's five, she is pulling Eleanor just on the property of this wagon and gets to the top of this hill. I look at him, I'm like, you guys aren't really going to do this, are you? (laughs) And they get this big grin on their face. Now, you have to understand, we have this beast, his name is Diesel, he's a great Dane, he weighs like 160, 170. And Diesel and I had been playing fetch, and like most dogs, you fetch with something the size of this, or a little bit bigger and thicker, obviously. I have this massive tree branch I just huck for him, and it hangs out both sides of his mouth. And so Diesel and I were throwing this thing as I'm burning, and the kids are playing, and I look at the girls at the top of the hill, and they just look at me, and they're going to go for it. So Addie begins to run down the hill while pulling the wagon with Eleanor in it. And at that time, Diesel just loves movement. And so he, with this big stick in his mouth, begins to run towards Addie Mae. And she catches it, trips over her feet, and the wagon rolls over her. Aw, poor Addie. 
Uh, we, we follow this thing called Jerry of the Day. Anybody follow Jerry of the Day on Instagram? Uh, we called Addie a Jerry in this moment because Jerry of the Day is a site where people just get hurt doing dumb things. <laughs> and dad's not sensitive. I mean, I'm sensitive, but I'm not sensitive to that kind of stuff. I'm like sensitive in my emotions. And I looked at Addie and I had actually started like videotape this and I immediately sent it to my wife, hashtag Jerry. And he's over there crying, so I'm a jerk. <laughs> she's crying, and she's hurting, and I get over to Addie Mae, and what do you think she wants in that moment? A hug. She wants presents. Not presents, not Christmas, right, like what you're thinking of. She wants presents with a C-E or S-C-E at the end of it, if you're, a, you know, spelling, okay? She wants presents. Why? Can somebody shut that back door? That'd be super (laughs) rad. Please tell them to yell louder, though. I love it. I think it's so fun. She wants presents. I want you to think now for a moment. I mean, like, Chuck Todd all happy and go lucky and, you know, Carson's a little melancholy and and Michael, he's pretty happy-go-lucky when he's up here. I'm always like this just depressing preacher, okay? But I say it with enthusiasm so I convince you that it's like a happy teaching. I want you to imagine this moment in your life right now. Maybe a season of a real low. I mean, this time of the year, we think and um, are always assuming everybody's having these great moments and great time and family, but this season can obviously be a real low for a lot of people for many different reasons. So maybe it's not hard to grab one of those. A time where you know, time almost stands still because of the hurt or the pain, because you can't believe the news you just received. Um, you're just feeling this loss in your heart. What do you want in that moment? Now, as Americans, Westerners, our first reaction is like, I don't want anybody around me. But deep, deep down, even though I might echo that sentiment in the moment, we're kind of like Addie Mae, aren't we? What we really want is someone to come alongside of us just to be present. We don't want to hear Romans 8.28. We don't want to hear Genesis 50 which you intended for evil, God. We know those things, but we, we want presence. Or let me paint another scenario. Maybe growing up, you were in a family in which mom or dad or both just weren't there. You'd look into the stands as you're playing sports, and you would hope and wish every weekend. Maybe it was their schedule and the busyness. Maybe it was just they were absent because of their own life circumstances or terrible life choices, but they weren't there. And what you desperately crave and what you desperately cry for is somebody to show up and to be present. Not for them just to provide in some way or to make lots of money, but you want somebody in the bleachers cheering you on. Or maybe on a positive side. Maybe on a positive side. If you've ever traveled anywhere really pretty, and if you've ever traveled somewhere alone really pretty, when you are in that spot and you're looking at the sunset, there's always something you say to yourself, I wish so-and-so was here to experience this with me. Presence. We desperately desire presence. And the power of presence is huge. This is even outside of Christianity. There's a deep longing for presence in our lives. And what we've done in our culture is we've, simply pushed away presence, replaced presence, the idea of just being with somebody with fixing things. That's what we do in our culture. 
Let me fix you. Let me fix the problem. That's what you need. That's what you want. But if you ever talk to anybody who's experiencing pain, more often than not, yes, they would love for whatever the situation is to go away, but typically, typically what we need in the moment is for somebody to come around us to love us, to care for us, to satisfy us, to just be with us, to add this dynamic of being social with one another for comfort, to know and to be known. Where, why does this exist in each and every one of us? Because when I look at the animal kingdom, yes, they can sometimes roll in a pack, but if an animal gets its leg broken, a lot of the times the pack's like, if you can't keep up, it's too bad, so sad, we're going to keep moving on. But there's this intrinsic desire within humans to want to come around one another and to be with each other. Why do we long for presence? Where did it all go wrong? And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the story of God, which I do this every so often, through the idea, through the theological thought of presence. Really, presence and temple are the two things that we're going to see here this morning. We looked at the story of God through many different facets. And I think as we begin to understand the story of God in its many diverse ways, it then can begin to make sense of things that are going on in our hearts, in our lives, in our longings, and what God is doing in his story with us. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to skip all the names. If you want to go through that, I taught on that last year. Have at it. It is so, so fun. But we're going to pick up in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, that is not his last name, by the way. Jesus Christ being Jesus the Messiah, the Mashiach, Christo in the uh, Greek, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We sang about what we were reading about in Isaiah. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin, or the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, Matthew knew that. So he says, which means God with us. If you underline your Bible, I think that's a very important line to begin to highlight. God with us. Why is that significant as you read this story? What does that actually mean? How does that begin to get into my life and change and reorder who I am as a person? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the vastness, the bigness of the story of God from paradise lost, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and present restricted, kicked out of the garden, no longer in that same kind of communion with God, to paradise and presence restored. The story of God through presence. Now, what made the Garden of Eden paradise? Has you ever thought about that? 
if you want, you can flip over to Genesis. You can mark it. If I read through it, we're going to be here for an hour, and I don't want to do that to you guys. And some of you today, we maybe could argue or talk about this, but Eden was not special because it was paradise. It was paradise because it was special. Yeah. What made Eden so special? What is the hallmark of it? It is God's presence with humanity. In Genesis 3, we read, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and taken that fruit and desired to do life on their own terms, in their own way, under their own independence, we read that God comes walking to them in the cool of the day. Now, most theologians would argue that this was not a one-time event for God. This was something that probably took place in the Garden of Eden, specifically where man and God would dwell with one another, this place where his presence was. It was paradise, not because it was tropical or it had mountains or rivers and lakes. It was paradise because the presence of God was with them. And even with that, there was work to get done. They were to cultivate, create. They were to make. They were to multiply. They were to walk in a trustworthy kind of relationship with God. And so as we consider what is going on in the Garden of Eden, what most come to in this conclusion is that the Garden of Eden really served as a temple of sorts. The big fancy word is it's a microcosm of the heavenly temple that's taking place down on earth. It's a place where heaven literally kissed earth. It's a forerunner, a precursor of what God would ultimately do and having the tabernacle built, tabernacle built as we're going to get into, the temple, and then in Jesus as well to give you a little bit of a spoiler here this morning. Eden was special, the Garden of Eden, because it was a hot spot for the presence of God. In Psalm 78, 69, it states that the sanctuary was built like the heavens and the earth. It says he built the sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. And there's this uh, Bible commentator, theologian, his last name's Levinson, and he says, text describing, I might have this, can throw that up there, the creation of the world and those describing the construction of a shrine are parallel. The temple and the world stand in an intimate and intrinsic connection. The two projects cannot ultimately be distinguished or disengaged. Each recounts how God brought an environment in which he can find rest. In Hebrews 9, there's this long description of the temple and the heavenly throne room and how they coincide with one another. And in Psalm 132, 13 through 14, it says the temple, or has this idea that the temple is constructed and viewed as this microcosm in scripture, contributing to this important concept is the fact that just as the cosmos is portrayed in temple terms, we're gonna make sense of all this in just a moment, the temple is configured as a microcosm. God said, to find repose in the temple. That is Psalm 132, 13, and 14. And so what we're going to do this morning is I want you to understand Eden, Eden, as a place in which God and man dwell in unity with one another. What is temple? What is temple? Historically, as you begin to look into cultures and societies, Even today, as you travel around the world, people believe their temples are places in which they go to meet with God, don't they? They're going to come, and they're going to bring a sacrifice, and then in return, the God or gods are going to give something back to them. They believe it to be some sort of holy place. 
Not necessarily always a place in which that God abodes or dwells, but a place in which they could come and they could pray and they could worship and in certain cults and sects and groups, they could participate in all sorts of pleasures and desires that they think would contribute to the worship of their gods. Temples were a place of worship and sacrifice. And in their minds, they were places where sort of heaven and earth come and they meet with one another. Just historically, generally, not even getting into what Christianity is going to say about all of this. Now, when we think about that, we can't fully disengage our thought process from what all those other groups thought about those temples. However, as the Bible talks about temple, we can think of it in terms of God's space, And as we think of the Genesis story, God's space, the heavens, and we can think of man's space on the earth, but the temple place where God's space and man's space, they collide, they meet with one another. As we read Adam walking in the cool of the day with God, this relationship had been established. But Genesis 3 begins to talk about the breakdown. And the breakdown this morning is loss of presence. Loss of presence, loss of relationship, fall, if you want to call it that, rebellion, independence, life outside of God's way is what took place in Genesis 3 when man said, I'm going to take life into my own hands and do things how I want to do them and participate in this life apart from you, God. So in their independence, in God's mercy and kindness, he takes them and he says, you can no longer have access to this temple. You can no longer have access to where this tree of life is. Because if you are to now eat of this tree of life, you're going to perpetually live in a state of rebellion, when I want unity, that will continue on into existence, but it will be a life that is apart from me. This is why God establishes these cherubim to sit in front of this tree, to prevent them, to keep them from coming into the garden, to participate in a continued godless state, so to speak. So they're booted out of the garden, and presence is lost. Now, presence is not fully lost. We don't, we don't get that in the story. I'd rather say presence is restricted. For Adam and Eve to come near to God, for Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 to come near to God, they were to bring sacrifice and they could be in his presence. There'd be an acknowledgement of, I am not independent, I am not on my own, but I need you. And there can be right relationship and right standing before God. And God is beginning to establish the story. And how it moves through the scriptures is, oh my goodness, Eden is lost. But God is going to do something through a people. And he begins to do that. And he begins to work through this people. And he delivers them from slavery. And as they are in the wilderness, God begins to give them instruction. I want you to build a tabernacle. A place in which I'm going to dwell. Do you see God's heart in this? He creates man, puts him in a garden, and he says, I want to be with you. Humanity says, we don't want to be with you. We'll do life on our own it all falls apart, right? falls apart real bad. And then through this nation, God says, I want to restore humanity with my presence at the center of it. I want to make you a nation of priests. I want you to minister and care for one another. I want you to dwell in unity with me. This is my plan, and this is how I want you to participate in it. The idea of temple, whether we're looking at Garden of Eden, the tabernacle this morning, a temple built, or new temple being Jesus, 
is a place in which not only man could go to meet with God, but God would be with humanity. It's all predicated upon faith in him. And so, here we go. Turn to Exodus. I'm going to actually have you turn to Exodus 40 because we're going to get there. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do with all this? It's Advent. Okay. In Exodus 19, God has delivered Israel. It's great news. The people are thrilled. They're excited. In Exodus 15, they sing this song. They had some hiccups in Exodus 16, 17, and 18 in which they're complaining and they're miserable and they think God brought them out to the wilderness to die, and he didn't. In Exodus 19, God wants to reveal himself to his people. Actually, in Exodus 19, God is inviting all of Israel to participate in what ultimately only Moses is going to participate in. He's inviting them up to the mountain in Exodus chapter 19. Now, Mount Sinai at this time, because God has his presence there, it's thundering. It's filled with just this cloud, which is typical when we talk about the presence of God. And the people look at it, and they're terrified, and they're scared. And they go, you know what, Mo? We vote you go. <laughs> like, you're the leader. You took us out of here. We think it's a good idea that you go up to the mountain. Is that what God wanted? No. no. It was an invitation to every person in Israel to come to that place to meet with God, to spend time with him. But in their terror and in their fear, they say, how about no, Mo, and we, we will stay back and it'll just be us. And it's sad because what God wants to do in them is he wants to be in their midst. So Moses goes up, and there's another huge problem with this golden calf that they create, and they begin to worship, and all this stuff happens, and then God renews covenant with them. And Moses is then instructed to build a tabernacle, the place where the presence of God would come. Now, in Exodus 40, 34, we're going to get an idea of why God wanted them to do this. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Okay, cloud. When you read the cloud in Exodus, you have to think presence of God. Okay? Can I just get that into your head? The presence of God. It's all over the scriptures. This metaphorical speech of God's presence with his people. It says, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Tabernacle, center, God's people all around, God's presence with them, just like what was intended in Eden. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journey, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night." in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So awesome. Cloud by day, fire by night, where the presence of God goes, the people, they go with him. Now, what's a little bit tragic about this story is that God had invited all of Israel, only Moses goes. Then in Leviticus chapter 9, the same scenario takes place where 
the priesthood is being inducted and brought in. And the priests are going to minister on behalf of the people. And the priests are going to meet with God. Remember, always intended for all people. If you think about it, it goes all the way back to Abraham, where you were to be a blessing to all nations, all people. It moved to, hey, we're going to work through Israel. But Israel didn't want it, so it's going to go through Moses. Now Moses is going back to the priesthood. You're seeing this this cycle and their invitation to be a part of it. But not everyone participated. And in that story of Leviticus 9, there's this dedication of the priesthood. And you see the same thing happening that happened right here in Exodus 40. You see fire come down. You see the cloud there. It's very, very intriguing. God's presence shows up and the people are in awe and wonder and they realize it. Now, the tabernacle ultimately gets left behind. The temple is built. Turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 8. It was fun. All right, verse 8, or excuse me, verse 6. 1 Kings 8. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house. Tabernacle's gone. Solomon builds the temple. The Ark is coming. In the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim, For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in it, the ark, except the two tablets of stone that Moses put at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel. And when they came out of the land of Egypt, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's presence. That's presence, just like in the tabernacle. If you read the parallel story in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, you also read that fire comes down in that place. God in the midst of his people in Israel. Now, if you're any bit of an Old Testament buff, you realize that God made a covenant with Israel and was predicated upon, if you do this, then I will do that. And the essential line is, I don't want you to go whoring after other gods. I don't want you to participate in idolatry and worship of Moloch and sacrifice your children. I don't want you to worship Ashtaroth or the other gods that existed in that day. I want you to be solely mine. And if you do this, I will bless you and I will be with you. But if you don't do this, there's going to be a great tragedy that comes upon you. And ultimately, it's the idea that his presence is going to be removed from Israel. They're then taken into captivity by Babylon and they're left wandering. Even when they come back, they're in this really cycle of exile and oppression, even up to the Roman Empire. And it's incredibly tragic for Israel because they lost in that sense, in that sense, they lost God's presence. But they weren't without hope. In Ezekiel, in Joel, they're promised that there would come a day in which God's presence would fill his people. In fact, in Joel... Chapter 2, verse 28, it says that the Spirit of the Lord will pour out on all people. And it connects to Joel, chapter 3, there'll be a physical presence of the Lord in all of his people, God dwelling with them. And so when we walk away from the Old Testament, 
we're left with this overarching, I'd love to get into the nitty gritty and all the details, big theme of people desire, people crave, people need the presence of God. But they haven't been able to quite figure out how to participate in it, how to receive it, how to make that happen. This brings us to the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And then you skip down a handful of verses, and it says, And he tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. Okay? Same kind of language. Presence of God going with us, moving with us. He's dwelling with us, much like that of Exodus 40, living in the tent. Jesus comes, God with us, Emmanuel, as we read in Matthew, and he sets up shop, and he begins to go all around Israel. Now, it's still a little bit limited, because people still had to, in some degree, come to him, even though he's also going to them. But the presence of God has come in physical form. Hear that. The presence of God has come in physical form. And in John 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says that the Spirit is going to come, and that's why he has to go away. Now, what's that going to look like? It's familiar with the story of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples after his resurrection, right before his ascension. And he says, hey, look, I'm going to go away but my presence is going to come. I want you to wait in this upper room. And in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 8, we read that the Spirit of God comes, and it comes as what? A rushing wind and fire on his people. It's the same scene, same scene as what's happened in the Old Testament in the temple. Fire coming down, rushing wind, clouded presence, God with his people. And it's this sign, and Peter gets up and speaks. This is what the prophet Joel has spoken about, that God is going to be with us. And it's not just for this small, select group, but it happened to the 120 that gathered there in Israel. It wasn't just the priesthood. It wasn't just men. It wasn't just one person, but it was the men and women in that upper room. God signifying, my presence is now with all of you, bringing to fulfillment what Joel had talked about, this beautiful vision of Ezekiel 43, 1 through 27, this vision of the glory of God filling his temple, his people. And that's why Peter says, in 1 Peter 2.9, or excuse me, 2.19 through 22, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and who the whole structure being joined together, grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, you are the temple. Not just you individually. I think a lot of New Age religion, they like to like just jump on that. Your body is, and it is in the sense that it's holy and set apart for God, yet we destroy it and we wreck it and we ruin it. But you as a people, y'all are the temple of God and he dwells in you. This, this church, this church, listen, I say this church, I mean redeemers, I mean you all, the people, is what the presence of God is about. When we read Emmanuel, God with us, 
not just some cute little story, but it's the fulfillment of two, three, four, five, six thousand years in the making of presence lost in Genesis and presence restored, God with his people now. He is God with us. Now we're gonna wrap up with what does that mean for us? This great God who comes with us, alongside of us, really to be this witness to us, he's entered into relationship with each and every one of you. If you think through the Old Testament appearances of God, it's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. What did Isaiah say? Woe unto me, I'm an unclean man. He's fearful. When God shows up in the burning bush to Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. The same situation happens um, to Joshua as he goes to take the promised land. When God shows up, people are trembling and they're fearful and they're afraid. There's smoke and furnace and moving air and just burning and you're going, what the heck is going on? God's presence is here. It's terrifying. Yet now, when God shows up, he comes in the form of a baby. Some of our best friends, Lauren and Trev, they go to this church. They just had their baby. They say, yeah, that's... Uh, hope I'm allowed to share that. I think I can. So... <laughs> I'll take the wrath later. They sent us pictures, and you're like, it's a baby. Now, if you're a first-time parent, you're like, oh, it's a baby. <laughs> like, oh, no, what am I going to do with this thing? Um, after a couple, you're like, it's a baby. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Right? God comes to us, and he comes in this way where he's not smoking the clouds. He's not fire but he comes to us in a personal presence way, a kind of way that we can understand in this human experience. And this is a big difference. And he comes and he wants to get to know you and spend time with you and love you and show his love towards you. Really, as we talk about being known and knowing, that's what God desires. And I have to share this with you guys because I think it's really important. There's a big difference between knowing about and knowing personally. And I think this gets overplayed in the church, but for good reason, it should be on repeat. A lot of us know a lot about God. Now think of it in terms like this. If you have a favorite band and you go to a concert, you go and you know them. I mean, you've read up on them and you can sing their songs. You might even know some of the places they came from when they were writing those songs. It's a whole nother experience though to actually sit in the back room with the band, isn't it? And to talk with them to be in a more intimate place, to be in that setting. And that's what God is doing. It's not just a place where you can know him and know about him. And yes, it's so important to know this story of God. But he's saying, I want to know you intimately. I want to know you deeply. I have come personally so you can actually know me personally. I want to know you. And Moses, if he had experienced this, would have been jumping up and down for he wanted to see God. And God said, I will just let you see my backside as I pass by you. If Moses could have experienced this, he would have said, guys, wake up. This is exciting. The very thing I was denied, you get to see. You can know him personally. Not in terror, not in fear, not trembling. But the God of the universe says, I've come so you can know me. You know what Christmas is all about? Christmas is all about getting to know him. 
It really is. He is God with us, getting near him. Now, how many people spent more time shopping on Friday? I'm going to guilt trip the heck out of us. (laughs) Than getting to know Jesus. I got to know Jesus through shopping for other people. (laughs) Nice try, right? It's kind of our thought process. No, I mean this in real, real honesty. God has come and he's brought all sorts of hope. And the question for you today is, what barriers do you put up? What walls have you erected? To say, Lord, I want to know you, but not really by breaking down the wall, not really getting close to you, because I know what you're going to ask of me if I do that. Christmas, this you know, season represents a season really for all of life of getting to know him. I want to be with you. So ask yourself, what am I doing to get to know Jesus? It's one of our pillars here at the church. Know him. What am I doing to get to know Jesus? Or how about this? I always love the inverse question. What's keeping you from him? keeps you from Jesus? What's keeping you from a sense of his love and just continually keeping your heart open to what he wants to do in you? How close are you to Jesus? Not how much do you know about Jesus? Shoot, half of you are so much smarter than me about Jesus. You know so much. You spent your lifetime studying. Do you know him? Do you know his presence? What's keeping you from that? Busyness, hurry, fear, better things to do. Get to know him. Get to know him. And what are you going to do about that? Claw out of, break habits of whatever is keeping you from knowing him. That's what I'm asking this church. That's what I'm asking you to do. That's what I'm asking you to focus on. I'm too tired to get to know him. Go to bed earlier, right? Don't let that be excuse. I'm too busy. Too busy for God? When I say that, I'm terrified, and I've said that, like, oh, not today, God, (laughs) too busy. He's like, you think you're busy, (laughs) right? Fear, gosh, I've had fear keep me from him. I've sinned, walked in it, pursued it, enjoyed it, and was fearful of him for his response to what he's going to do to correct it. I don't want to go down that road with you, God, I'll ignore you. I'll avoid you, right? What is keeping you from getting to know him? Nothing kept him from getting to know you. He became man, goes to a cross, dies, resurrects, ascends, so he can live with you, be in the midst of you. He is our temple. He's with us. We are his people. Let's pray. God, I hope that tidbits of this just hit us and just allows us to see the bigness and the connection of the story of God, but also hits us personally, that we might know you and your presence. As we sing together, may we rejoice in who you are. May we be thankful that you are with us. As we take communion with one another, may we realize that you are in our midst. Be present in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're new here, um, we're going to have a time of response, and how we respond to Jesus is a few ways. One, we do sing. Um, just kind of create space also to quiet our hearts and to hear and receive from him. Even as others are singing around us, we can do that. Uh, we participate in communion weekly, rejoicing in his death and resurrection, the promise of his return, the fact that he's made us a people. Ron's going to come up and lead us in communion after this first song. 
And so during this first song, grab communion if you're a follower of Jesus. We've got an opportunity to give. There's a little white box in the back there. You can give to what God is doing here. God wants to spend time with you. What you do with this time, it's up to you. God wants to spend time with you. He's made you his people. Let's respond appropriately. Thank you.